Glad to be here with you guys today to celebrate Pentecost. This is the day where we remember, like, this is the day where the church became the church. This is an important day in the church calendar. I remember in 2010, it was the first time I saw Dalai Lama on the Today Show. And I remember asking my mom, like, who is this guy and why is he wearing funny robes? Like, I don't understand who this guy is. But what I remember from that day is I had this thought of like, oh, he's a, he's a Buddhist, but what makes a Buddhist a Buddhist? Is it the orange and red robe? Is it the way that they meditate? Is it the food that he eats and the things that he drinks? What makes a Buddhist ultimately is whether you agree with the four fundamental truths that Buddha made under the Bodhi tree so many years ago, but it continues on of what makes a person who is Jewish, Jewish. Is it blood lineage alone? Is it the keeping of food laws and the rest of the Torah, all of the laws in the book of Leviticus? Is it circumcision if you are male? And what about if you are female? By and large, you are considered Jewish today if you have either descended from a Jewish ancestor or if you embrace the Jewish faith tradition, believing and practicing what Jewish people believe. But what makes a person Mormon? Is it the caricature we've all heard of silly underwear in the temple? Is it believing in the Book of Mormon? Is it becoming a part of the LDS community or is it just keeping in step with their high moral code? not consuming alcohol and not consuming soda, tea, or coffee, which is crazy. What makes a person Mormon is all of these things, believing in the Book of Mormon and committing to a life of obedience, how the LDS Church leads and guides them. But more importantly, today on the day of Pentecost, the question begets itself, what makes a Christian a Christian? What makes a follower of Jesus a follower of Jesus? Is it listening to only worship music? I remember back in the 90s, purity culture, we had to like throw our rock and roll CDs away. I didn't, Brandon did. That's, that's, I didn't have any rock and roll CDs. I was a good kid. Um, Was it believing that the Bible is inerrant? What exactly does that mean? Is it mentally agreeing with the truth statement that Jesus died for your sins? Living in obedience to the scriptures, is it believing in a seven-day creation narrative? What makes a Christian a Christian? Is it abstaining from sex before marriage? Is it repeating a prayer after someone else invites you to pray it, not quite knowing what you're actually praying? According to Jesus, what makes someone a Christian is what we are experiencing and celebrating in this text today. What makes someone a Christian is not religious participation or generosity in and of itself. It is, not, uh, it is not what makes you a Christian that you would keep all of Jesus' high instructions from the certain Sermon on the Mount to not lust and not worry or not to want or be anxious or commit adultery or to murder or to not get divorced or to not make an oath. You could keep all of those things and according to Jesus still not be a Christian. The defining factor of what makes a person what we would call a Christian or a follower of Jesus or what the book of Acts talks about, because like, there's no name for them yet at this point in the story. 
They're just following this rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, who has died and resurrected. And so what, what makes them followers of Jesus, what makes them what we call Christians, the defining factor is this moment is being filled with the Holy Spirit. Confession and belief, yes, preclude to the reality that God fills you with his spirit. In John 3, there's a man named Nicodemus who's a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he comes to Jesus at night because he's really curious about this Jesus thing, but he's nervous enough about his own standing and culture that he comes at night so he's not seen. And he's like, surely you've come from God. The things you do and the things you say, they're amazing. No one could perform, perform these signs except if God were doing them. And Jesus says to him, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nicodemus asks like, how are you born again? Like that doesn't make any sense in religious understanding of that day whatsoever. He says, do you enter your mother's womb a second time? Which is not a thought we all needed today on Sunday morning. But Jesus answers, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Or in Romans 8 verse 9, Paul adds to the conversation and says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Romans 8, 11 goes on to say, if the spirit of him who has raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. Just think on that sentence for a second. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Or one more, last one, and then we'll continue on. Titus 3, verse 4 and 5. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Today, we celebrate the like true mark, the true authentication, the true reality is that you are a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus if the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, dwells inside of you. This is supposed to be the defining mark of Jesus' church. Not taking communion a certain way or singing certain songs of worship or abstaining from certain, like not throwing away our rock and roll CDs, but like the spirit of the living God lives inside of you. That is a reality. That is what Jesus says from the scriptures. Like, like this is what it means to follow me is that God's spirit will come and descend inside of you. He will dwell in you, make a tabernacle, a home, a temple of your body. 
that God would live into the world through you. And we are invited to participate in that reality. It's so amazing, so humbling. But the reality is we don't get to this point where we're in Bakersfield in 2022, more than 2,000 years removed from the death and the resurrection of Jesus without the like, guidance and divine providence of the Holy Spirit. We aren't sitting in the, like my story in and of itself. I am not in this room unless 19 years ago Jesus stirs in my heart through the power of his spirit that there's something more for me. Something I was made for that's different than like me just having fun in my high school years. And I know so many of the other stories in this room, like you have that same experience where some point, whether you're raised in the church or not, at some point, like the spirit of God begins to stir in you to build a different sort of life toward a different sort of kingdom. Not the kingdom you had planned and envisioned, but God's kingdom, a story that's so much bigger than the one we would ever choose for ourselves. And the reason that is, is because like sometimes when we choose to accept the watered down version of Christianity that is about like some moral code keeping or some like piece of ethic, like that, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Those things are important. I don't want to dismiss them. Morality is important. Ethics are important. The fact that like I have a God I can call on, that's important. But being empowered by the Spirit of God himself, that is the defining mark, the defining movement of Jesus and his church. That is who we are, people of the Spirit, the community of the Spirit. That is who we are. That is our inheritance that we get to say yes to stepping into and yes to becoming, to becoming a person acquainted and aware of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you and inside of me. And the purpose of this is because the purpose of, of what we've been talking about, Jesus and, and his, his gospel and his story and what he's doing is, is Jesus is constantly and always talking about the inbreaking kingdom of God. And a few weeks ago, we took some time to define this. We defined the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place with God's power. Or the king's people, the king's place, the king's power, whatever language you prefer. In this moment, what we call Pentecost is the moment where the kingdom of God is inaugurated on earth through his church and through his people. Before this moment, we had Jesus embodied on earth. We had the Messiah who was coming to accomplish a specific mission. But now Jesus has ascended. He's returned to the Father. And Jesus, in his place, has said, It is better that I go that the Holy Spirit may come. And so that's what Pentecost is about. It's about the Holy Spirit coming to indwell followers of Jesus. That the Holy Spirit makes a life, like makes itself known, reveals and convicts and stirs toward holiness and toward Christ-likeness. That the power of the Spirit of God lives in each of us. And so as we look at this and talk about it, it's important that we understand the question, like what is the Holy Spirit? How many of you have seen Star Wars? How many of you have not seen Star Wars, so we can just publicly shame you real quick? 
just that no shame, I'm just kidding, kind of. Like it's, when we get the kneelers, we'll also have like a Star Wars night and there'll be a two-in-one deal. So I'm a fan, but I'm not like a nut. Like there's, there's like fan fans. I'm not one of those, I'm a fan. But most of you, if you've seen Star Wars or even if you haven't because of pop culture, you know what like the concept of the force is. And I want to reveal that to say the Holy Spirit is not like that. Because we have such a limited understanding of, of who the Holy Spirit is and such a high understanding of Star Wars pop culture. Most of the time when we think of Holy Spirit, we equate those two because we just don't have a good handle on what to call the Holy Spirit or how to approach the Holy Spirit. Just real quickly, for, for those of you that are like, Star Wars fans, you're like, no, I think the Holy Spirit is. You gotta convince me otherwise. Real quickly, the immediate issue with that concept is that Darth Vader also uses the force for evil. So just to like debunk it so we can move on. So the Holy Spirit is not some power to be utilized to like use Jedi mind tricks to bring my coffee to fly across the room and into my hand without spilling. That's, that's not what the Holy Spirit is. According to Barna, who's like the leading Christian institution on research, data, statistics, and study about what people believe, particularly in the West, they say this, most Christians, 58% to be exact, uh, at least according to this interview, most Christians, 58% of them, believe that the Holy Spirit is a symbol of God's power or presence, but it is not a living entity. And that statement breaks my heart. It grieves me to the core. Because what we have done in the church for the last decade or two or three is like pushed the Holy Spirit. Let me say this differently, pushed God. Because the Holy Spirit is God. We've pushed him aside and said, we've, we've got this. Let us do it. We'll take your symbol and we'll throw it up. We'll throw the dove up everywhere. It's not a knock on churches who rock doves. I went to a church for a long time that rocked doves. But what we need more than a dove is we need the Holy Spirit. And this, uh, this statement, this reality that most Christians believe that the Holy Spirit is a symbol of God's power and presence, this, this highlights the way that we treat the Spirit of God. Highlights the way that we interact with the Holy Spirit because we don't interact with the Holy Spirit um, in the way that we ought because fundamentally the Holy Spirit is God and the Holy Spirit is a person. He's a person of the Trinity. He is equal with the Father and with the Son. He has a personality. Just want to like sit in that for a second. You can, you can quench the Holy Spirit. You can anger or frustrate the Holy Spirit. You can partner with the Holy Spirit. So we have to begin to like reimagine who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is God, and that's what the historic church for 2,000 years has always believed, is that, that the Holy Spirit has been sent by the Father and the Son to like animate, to empower God's people for the reality of kingdom living and kingdom life. That the Spirit indwells us, not just for the sake of like that we feel better about ourselves, 
but the Spirit empowers us that we would participate in the things that God has for us. And this is true, as if, if you know the scriptures, this is true uh, all the way back in the Old Testament. It, the, the Spirit has descended now differently, but we see it even from the very beginning. In Genesis 1, we see that the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. And then we see all throughout the scriptures at different moments where the Spirit is uniquely named to like equip someone and empower someone for some beautiful work. And just for a second, because we tend to like also over-spiritualize this. So I just want to put a pin in the fact that one of the things, the second thing mentioned, uh, that the Spirit of God empowers is a carpenter to build really good things out of wood. Like whatever your job is, sit with that in your reality for a second. This is not some hyper-spiritual earn. He's like, me, bro? Yes, 100%. He's a carpenter who builds things out of wood. So for those of you that don't know. But the Spirit wants to empower or animate or take the things that we have and use them for the kingdom. Use them for a purpose. Use them for God's mission. The power of God that dwells inside of his people is the fundamental differentiating factor between every other religion and world system and Christianity. That is the distinct mark of difference. Being filled with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the third member of the Trinity, all of these are a way of saying God, the third member of God. The Holy Spirit is just as much God as Jesus and the Father is. And at Pentecost, the Spirit of God descends and dwells amongst his people. God's power, God's resurrection power falls into God's people that it might work through God's people. Or maybe think about it this way. At Christmas time, we celebrate the incarnate Jesus born in the flesh, and we celebrate Jesus being embodied, being on earth, being with us. Today on Pentecost Sunday, we celebrate the power of God, the Spirit of God, whether we see it or feel it or touch it or taste it or not. The reality is that the Spirit of God lives inside of us, dwells within us, that we are not alone for anyone who's alone today. You are not alone, but the Spirit of God is with you. 1 Corinthians six nineteen says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? And this is what is happening in the Acts 2 passage is this animating power of God that takes, like, takes chaos and brings order. He indwells and lives inside of you and me. The Holy Spirit is not some Harry Potter wand for us to wield at our own like will. The power does not belong to us with the Spirit inside of us. The power is fundamentally and always God's power. It's always His. It has always belongs to the person of the Spirit. Are you with me? Does that make sense? A little bit, okay. And this empowerment in the book of Acts comes on the backside of this group of 120 people waiting in this upper room. First of all, like that's a lot of people waiting. And I had a lot to say, but the Spirit was like, not today, so I'm, I'm not gonna camp here for long, but, um, 
But I think it's important to say still that it's important for us as people to reorient ourselves to people who wait for Jesus to fulfill his promises to us today. That we reorient ourselves to wait for Jesus to fulfill his promises to us today. Because at some point, we began to believe that it was okay to stop waiting on God and, and, and expect, like carry a bodily expectation that God respond on the timeline we see fit to give him. And there is a significant problem with that way of thinking. For some reason, we have normalized the thought that God is supposed to like respond in the seven minutes that I give him in the morning. And if like, I'll share my own experience. If I'm not like feeling God respond, I'm just gonna move on with my day rather than wait for him to show up and meet me where I'm at and like cry out, come Holy Spirit. When was the last time you waited on God? Like waited, waited on him, like ached for him, like showed up in a space and said, God, I'm not leaving until you show up too. Cry out, come Holy Spirit until the Holy Spirit came. Until more of God came. Usually we are found waiting for God to do the things we want rather than waiting for God himself. And that is a part of this reorientation is we must reorient ourselves that the thing that we're waiting for is not a change or a shift in our circumstances, but we're waiting to encounter the living God, the Holy Spirit inside of us, and that that is reason why we wait. Not that things change, but that we find God again. We recalibrate with the person that is the Holy Spirit. So this crew of 120-ish people are all waiting on God, waiting for Jesus' words that it is better that I go, that the Holy Spirit might come and you might be filled in power. And so this, this happens in Acts 2. And the first thing they experience is not like a burning in their chest that might be indigestion, but the first thing they do is they hear a sound like a rushing or blowing wind that comes from heaven. And then they saw tongues of fire that came and settled on each of them. And as you can imagine, there's some debate as to what this actually looks like because none of us really know, but what we know for sure is that these two marks are distinct manifestations of the presence of God, the wind and the fire. Israelites would hear this story or have, hear about this experience and they would think about Ezekiel 37 when God's breath, God's ruach, or the four winds of Ezekiel calls it, like they come and take the dry bones of Ezekiel 37 and they bring life back. And then again, the manifestation of fire would bring to mind the burning bush in Exodus or the leading of God's people by a pillar of fire. But what we have to understand is like as we inherit this story, as we inherit Acts 2, that like this, this promise of the coming Holy Spirit has been promised for a long time in the Old Testament before Jesus ever utters a word about it. In Isaiah 44 verse 3 it says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And so the promised day in the Israelites' mind finally comes and the Holy Spirit descends on God's people and empowers them and they all begin to speak in tongues as the Spirit enables them. And I wanna spend just a second of time, maybe 
five minutes, unpacking the Old Testament anticipation around this day, around this experience for you. It'll also help give us some frame as to why there's God-fearing Jews in Jerusalem. So uh, what's important to know is that the salvation story of the Old Testament is the, is the book of Exodus. That is the salvation story. When we think of salvation in the West, we think of like belief and cognitive and thoughts. Uh, when, when Jews thought of their salvation story, they thought of a like physical embodied departure from an impressed land to be free under God's rule and God's reign. And so this story is, is summed up in the Passover story where there are 10 plagues on the land of Egypt. And God wants Pharaoh to let his people go. Moses, God's mouthpiece, keeps warning Pharaoh about that, but Pharaoh's not having any of it. And eventually God starts using plagues, and his intention, I believe, is to get Pharaoh's attention, that Pharaoh would respond in an appropriate way to God, and he doesn't. His heart gets harder and harder, and eventually the tenth plague comes, and it's the story of Passover where every Jew should put the blood of the lamb over their doorposts, and God will pass over that house. But all the houses that do not have that blood, their eldest son, their child, will be killed. And surely enough, this happens. This is reality. Even to Pharaoh, he loses a son. And so Pharaoh, in frustration and grief and anger, finally sends out all of God's people out of the land of Egypt. And this is when and where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. So just for a second, I want you to think like Passover, the night where you put blood on your doorpost, 50 days later is is where Moses receives the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. So I want you to hold those two things in your mind because what's important about this story is that God is not just like giving new rules for people, but what God's actually doing is giving instructions of how to build a new type of community, a new type of humanity, one with him as king. And so this 50-day mark 100% parallels with the story in the book of Acts. It parallels with what we celebrate today. Jesus dies on the cross for the sin of the world, and 50 days later, you have Jews gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate what in the Old Testament is called the Feast of Weeks, the celebration of Mount Sinai. This is also a moment of first fruits. This Feast of Weeks moment uh, is about celebrating the coming harvest. Harvest has already begun a little, and so farmers have harvested the first fruits, the first yield of their land, and they're coming and offering it to God that God would manifest and multiply. And so this, this moment of Passover, or sorry, this moment of Pentecost links us to the Exodus salvation story where God gives new instructions to form a new community 50 days after, and it also links us to the Feast of Weeks, the first fruit of what is to come. And so this picture of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 is meant to connect us not to just this moment, but the entire story of God, to the story of Exodus and God using Moses to form a new people, and to the story of the first weeks that that God, like this is the first fruit of the harvest. So while we generally see Pentecost as just the coming of the Holy Spirit, we should see that, that, and that's important. We don't want to miss that. That is like, again, it is what makes the church the church. But I think it is also fair to see that the coming of the Holy Spirit is also representative of the forming of a new community and the work that the Holy Spirit is like the first fruits of the works of the Holy Spirit. 
So those two pieces from the Old Testament, as, as uh, Luke quotes these stories, as he touches them, as he interacts with timelines, those two pieces should be dragged into this story, that, that this is both like the outpouring of God's Spirit into people for the formation of a new community, and it is the first fruits, like these moments in the upper room are the first fruits of what God is going to do in the world. I know that's dense, and I know that's a lot. I hope for like seven of you it's helpful. But the Holy Spirit here provides a new community and gives a picture of what is to come. So what does this mean in the story? It means that God has given his spirit to dwell in his people for the work of his mission in the world. God has given his spirit to dwell in his people, you and me, for the work of his mission in the world. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I quoted a section, or I quoted Christopher Wright, and he's a uh, new and Old Testament scholar. He's a genius, he's brilliant. But I wanna share again what I shared then, which is God does not have like a, a mission for his church. He does not have a mission for God's people. God has a mission that he has always been on. And now he has a church to help fulfill the mission that he has always been on. So th that frame, that understanding is really important to understanding the empowering of the Spirit because it's not the empowering of the Spirit for our own good feelings or our own good works. It is the empowering of the Spirit to participate in the kingdom life that Jesus has called and invited us into. He's inaugurated himself and then empowered us to live into that reality. But what does this like actually do? What does this actually mean for you and for me? Like a very practical, how does this affect my Monday? What this means is lots of things. It means that we're no longer held captive by our sin because we have the power of God that lives inside of us. It means that you are free because of the empowering spirit of Christ. It means that we no longer see the world the way we used to see the world. It means that we have a new story to live into. It means that I no longer see people as people that I am either better than or competing against, but all of them are image bearers of God. It means that, um, it means that God has placed his spirit in me because he has specific things he wants to accomplish in and through me. It means that our entire life is invited to look different. It means that I have been redeemed and I am being redeemed. It means I have a new story to live into. You see, it, it quite literally changes everything. The power of God lives in you. The power of God lives in you. And this is what Jesus says. John 14, verse 12 says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Or Stanley Hauerwas says in his book on the Holy Spirit, Jesus commands us to do some pretty extraordinary things in his name, but he never commands us to attempt to obey him by ourselves. He commands and he empowers. He commands and he empowers. So what does this mean for God's people? 
This moment in history, this Acts 2 moment, is the moment that makes the church the church. It's the moment where God's people are empowered by Jesus' kingship after he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. It's when a group of people become empowered by the Spirit to carry on God's mission to the rest of the world. I heard it said recently that when Jesus was on earth, when Jesus was in bodily form, all the things that Jesus did then through his body are the things that Jesus wants to do now through his body, through you and through me, through the body of Christ, through his church. All the things Jesus did in his body, Jesus wants to do now through his body. And just to attest to that reality really quickly, like Bible nerd, if, if you're a Bible nerd, the three of you, um, there's only one miracle we see in the New Testament that, that isn't performed by someone other than Jesus. All of Jesus' miracles are performed by other people as well, except when Jesus commands the weather and the waves to stop. That's the only one that is not duplicated of miracles. So what that means, what that reveals is that the power of the Spirit is working through God's people to do miraculous and beautiful and redemptive things. And that same Spirit that we see in, in the people of the Scriptures who are moving in God's power, we are invited to participate in that too. In Acts 5, there's this like story that still blows my mind where a bunch of people who are sick lay out their mats and Peter walks past them. And when Peter's, Peter's shadow is cast on them, they're healed. Everything in my human like logic and reasoning capacities wants to dismiss that as a possible reality. And I imagine you are much the same, but who are we to dismiss God in how he wants to move in power? I have a friend, Katia. She's not really a friend. I've met her twice. Uh, I would say she's a friend. That's a friend in my book, but not my wife's. Um, Katia is from Iran. And Katia has a beautiful story. She's a church planter in Boston. That's how we got to meet. But uh, Katia tells the story about how the church was largely dead in Iran. And one day, her grandfather um, and him and his wife and their son, Katia's dad, were at home doing normal things. And they had never heard of Jesus. They'd never heard of him. I know that's like weird for us to think about because we hear about him all the time. They had never heard of Jesus. And one day, for no, like, no reason other than God decided to, the Holy Spirit fell. And everyone in the house began to speak in tongues. And everyone began to cry out to God. And that no, no missionary present, no one there giving them a Bible, none of that. Like the Holy Spirit, like this moment in Acts, descended on this place. And that table inside that home has become the place of where the modern Iranian church was like born again. Because God decided to like send his spirit to revitalize the church in Iran again. And if I'm honest, as I think about the Holy Spirit and I think about this church, most of the time I've thought about it or prayed about it, I've been like crying out for like a Katia's family type moment. I've been crying out like the Holy Spirit would just like take over this room. Some of you are like, I'm so not down for that. I'm sorry. That's been my prayer and my request. 
But as I was like leaning into and praying for that, that like Holy Spirit, if you've, if you've been around me the last couple months, I can't stop praying like Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you come? Please come, Holy, like we can't do this aside from you. Holy Spirit, would you come? And as I was praying for this teaching and preparing for it this week, the Spirit just began to go like, you need more awareness before manifestation. So like I've desired the manifestation of the Spirit to bring healing and help and heal brokenness and encourage the body of Christ and unify the body of Christ. I've desired all of those things that come through the power of the Spirit. And this week the Spirit was like, why don't we, why don't we like become more aware of the reality that I live inside of you? Why don't we start there? And I think all my friends in the room who've been doing church for much longer than I have would say that's probably a way better place to start anyways. They were keenly aware day in and day out that the power and presence of God dwells inside of us. And he empowers us. And so I won't stop crying out, Holy Spirit, would you come? I won't stop asking God to do miracles in this church and through you all people filled with the Spirit. I won't stop asking for that, but I think the question that the Spirit kept beckoning today is like, do you, like, do you love me? Do you love the Holy Spirit? For most of us, that's a weird question we've never even thought about. We love Jesus. Do you love the Holy Spirit? Do you cultivate a life with the Holy Spirit? Are you aware that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you? And again, this is not a feeling. The Holy Spirit is so far apart from feelings all the time. That is not what this is about. This is about a truth and a reality that God says is true. This is a rebirth. This is a shift in heart. This is a transformation of heart and mind. Our Pentecostal friends lean heavily into the manifestation of the gifts of conversion and that the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians manifest then. And they aren't altogether wrong, but they're not altogether right. Sometimes the spirit falls like it does in Acts 2 or at Katia's grandfather's home, but sometimes the spirit invites us to take a little bit more step than we're comfortable from where we are right now to lean into him, to trust him, to obey him. So the question is for us, like, what do we do with this story? What do we do with this reality? The first thing is we need to accept the reality that, that Jesus tells about and the other authors of Scripture is that if you are a follower of Jesus and who has been born again, then the Spirit of God lives inside of you and, and wants to affect wants to affect. His desire is to affect every single aspect of your life. Jesus won't do with anything but like full redemption for the purpose of the kingdom. He's not for like partial redemption. He, like his plans, his desires, his wants are for like total redemption that our lives are fully empowered by the spirit as we give ourselves to the king and the kingdom. What though? For what exactly? Like what are we, what are we empowered for? Everything. Your normal job building things out of wood, taking care of people at the doctor's office, seeing people at the emergency room, providing an encouraging word to someone nearby. At some point, we have to begin to see like the interruptions that are in our life is like 
opportunities to practice the presence of the Holy Spirit. It, I have a friend of mine who prays every morning, God, whoever I run into today, I'm just gonna trust that you sent them. I'm gonna believe that that's true. And if it's not, that's okay. It really is. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna intentionally step into the people that I bump into with like the Holy Spirit in mind and asking God, what is this for? Why am I here? How, I can, how can I be a mechanism? A, 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 how can I be used by the king for the kingdom in this moment at time? And sometimes we think that's, again, really spiritual, but I think the encouragement uh, is like this is really, really ordinary. I think one of the things that often hurts our spirituality or our awareness of the Holy Spirit is that we think it's supposed to be really, really, really spiritual when what it's supposed to be is really, really, really normal, very ordinary, very like washing the pots and pans again for the second time today. And the Spirit is there and with you. There are two distinct marks from the New Testament from this point forward through the rest of the scriptures. The first distinct mark is the witness to the person of Jesus that we should follow him and obey him, become like him, build our lives around him, build communities around him, bless the world through him. And the second mark is the incarnate power of the Holy Spirit. That is the second mark of what happens in the New Testament is that the Spirit has empowered people to participate in God's mission of restoring the world. Again, I say that right on the backside of very, very ordinary. And the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of God, which has not ended and will not end until Jesus returns to establish his kingdom in full. And so I want to leave, like, I'm getting close, I promise. But I, I mentioned earlier, I've been praying, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. I even prayed again now, come Holy Spirit. And a part of that is I've caught sight and vision that I like, and, and just wisdom passed down through generations. That if the Holy Spirit's gonna manifest in power, whether that be like a unique spiritual manifestation of a gift or like me being able to supernaturally love my children beyond my own capacities, that the Spirit is going to show up where he's wanted. Most often, God comes where he is wanted. It's not always true. Katya's grandfather's story is not that, but that is the exception to the rule more than it is the rule. God's spirit comes where he is wanted. So God can show up anywhere, to be clear, anytime he wants. But again, I want you just to go back to the picture of the upper room and think of 120 people gathered around waiting. And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for God to show up. They're waiting for God to manifest, for Jesus' promises to be true, and they're, wait, like they're wanting God to show up, and they're willing to wait for it. To close our time, I want you to think about lighting a fire, just for a second. I want you to think about the power in that fire. For many of you, it is like my house, where like I turn a knob, and the fire's lit. Or you like flip a switch and the fire's lit. That's not the kind of fire I want you to think about. I want you to think about like building a fire when you're out camping or building a fire in the backyard. 
I want you to think about building an actual fire. And if you have some firewood and a lighter, some sort of paper, twigs, kindling, you can get the fire started. Or if you're like me at all, you like light the twigs and the paper on fire and then it goes out and then you light it again and then it goes out and then you get mad and then you light it again and then it might not go out as much. I don't know. But eventually, maybe you get lighter fluid. That's what it is. You get lighter fluid and then it works. But skilled fire starters, I have some friends, camp often, very skilled fire starters. Imagine Jordan Barker's one of them. Skilled fire starters light it the first time the twigs, this little like compact thing of like dead leaves and grass or whatever. And they light it. They light the twigs and the leaves and then they blow on it. And now I want you to think about the kingdom of God being like a fire. I want you to think of your life being used for the kingdom like a fire, but the reality is that you and me could like puff on the fire all we want from our own efforts, but we can never get the fire to light. That we can't actually light the fire by ourselves, but with Jesus beginning the work and then providing the Holy Spirit, the Ruach of God in each and every one of us. The kingdom grows first in a small way. Fires don't get real big real quick. They grow in a small way. First, the kingdom grows deep down in our hearts, and then it fills us, and then it begins to overflow into every space that we're in. And from our lives, the kingdom of God spills out, not because of anything we've done, not because of how we've arranged the firewood, but because of the Spirit of God that lives inside of us and animates us to live into the kingdom. The power of the fire, like the power of the Spirit, first begins animating small things, and then the Spirit of God allows that fire to grow. And that's my prayer for us today, is that God would do that in us today, that he would animate the small things, that he would awaken our hearts, that we would like become aware again of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that lives in each and every one of us. The last thing I want to share, I said that like three times ago, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry, but I'm, whatever. Um, There's this old teaching strategy. I'm a teacher, for those of you that don't know. Um, It's called N plus one. And what that means is that when you have a room of 30 different students, they all come to you at different places in understanding. So I may come knowing how to do like zero plus six, but Chris, who's an engineer, knows how to do math well beyond my ability. And we're in the same classroom together. That's what N represents. We're at very different places, but we're still studying math. And so this teaching strategy is to be aware of the reality of N plus one. The goal is not for me to become Chris today. The goal is to take wherever you are on this journey with the Holy Spirit and move it plus one. Does that make sense? So it's not, it's not to start like, if the Spirit wants to pour out and we all speak in tongues, let's do it. If, if we're just gonna go like, Spirit, I trust you a little bit more today. I'm gonna listen to you a little bit more today. 
I'm going to allow myself to be animated to take steps of faith in places I normally wouldn't today. I'm going to, like, those things are good and beautiful too. Does that make sense? And so N plus one, like that, that's what my prayer is for this moment at River and Way Church. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your nearness and your presence. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the things that the Spirit does, points us to Christ, convicts us of sin, lives and dwells inside of us, brings us back to the Father. We thank you that you've sent the Spirit, God, and I just ask that you would send the Spirit again. That the Spirit would fill us afresh and anew, like, like the roaring of wind, would you fill us afresh and anew today, God? And would you, because of the power of your spirit, would you take us a little bit further in trusting and knowing you, spirit? I'm just reminded of the words that Jesus said, it is better that he leaves, that the spirit would come. And may we have the like radical faith to believe that's actually true. That it's better that Christ left so we could have the Spirit inside of us. And that that, like, that truth should awaken our hearts to the things you have in front of us, God. And so we just give ourselves to you. We give ourselves to the Holy Spirit. And we ask, God, that you would have your way in us. Would you increase our awareness of who you are and what you are doing? Because, God, there's like nothing we want more in the world than more of you. We want you, like that's the deepest desire of our heart is like more you, God. Would you give it to us? In this room, at this moment, would you give it to us? Even just invite you to pray out on your own, like God, I want more of you today. Holy Spirit, I want more of you today. I want to be aware of the kingdom and what you're doing and how you're moving and how you've wired and shaped and placed me in a specific place at a specific time in history to be empowered by the Spirit to do what? May we know your voice, Spirit. May we listen, abide, and obey, God. We love you. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to respond. This is, this is what I think is the most important time. One of the most important times of the gathering is how we respond to what God said and did today. And so uh, would you stand with me? We're going to uh, get the elements of communion right now and then Return to your seats, and we'll take communion, and then we'll worship, and we'll sing together. Let's sing to Jesus together. But you are released to get communion. <laughs>